This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo. I am speaking with Jeff Mayno, who is the co-author of Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. Your other co-author is Nicola Twilly. Jeff, this sounds incredibly timely. Tell us about the book. Sure, yeah, it did end up being even more timely than I think we had expected, you know, when we first pitched it. You know, ironically, when we sold the book to our editor in 2016 on, on contract to start writing it, um, the title was actually The Coming Quarantine. Our theory at the time was that, you know, with all of these emerging diseases around the world, with factory farms and with people going into rainforests and cutting them down, uh, you know, going into caves that we previously hadn't explored. We're encountering animals, we're encountering diseases, we're encountering germs that we hadn't before. They're infecting us. Those people who have the infection are hopping on planes, going to cities, and without a vaccine, without a cure, maybe without even knowing what those diseases are, quarantine is the one thing that can really protect us from those things. And so we thought, you know, there's this coming era of quarantine, this thing that seems outdated and it seems medieval is actually going to be uh, really necessary in the future. And um, that's really what inspired us to our approach to the book. And then, of course, when COVID-19 hits and the, the world locked down in just a matter of weeks, the title of the coming quarantine was instantly obsolete. And, uh, you know, it changed a little bit of the book. But um, and now the book is finally out in an in a unexpectedly timely way. So from the point where you pitched this to COVID-19 hits, what were, what were some of the significant changes in the way you looked at this issue? Uh, how, did it, how did it change your perspective with regard to quarantine itself? Well, yeah, it was really interesting doing the research for it. The, the actual idea for the research is even older than in 2016. 2016 is when we started working on the book. But I'd say that, you know, when we first got interested in this, uh, it was about a decade ago. And what had happened was that we had noticed a quarantine in Australia where we were traveling at the time that had been converted to a hotel. And uh, I'm an architecture writer. I, you know, I write about design. I write about cities. I write about architecture. And so my initial thought was actually, huh, that's interesting. You know, what happened to quarantine? You know, why is the station no longer needed quarantine no longer happened here you know where did this thing go this practice this medical uh, uh, idea and so nikki and i my wife and co-author you know started looking into quarantine a little bit more and of course as soon as you look into quarantine you realize it really didn't go anywhere if anything it kind of expanded and it's uh, you know it takes place at airports uh, quarantine is used in our food supply nasa uses quarantine for a astronauts going back and forth to the international space station quarantine is still very important it's just kind of invisible you know, it happens almost by definition, sort of offstage, uh, where, where, where it won't uh, threaten or, or hurt people and it can, can, can keep diseases out, out of the, the society that we live in. And so anyway, to make a long story short, you know, I think that as we started researching it more heavily for the book, it was just really fascinating to just see exactly how ubiquitous quarantine was. You know, it was everywhere in history. We began to get the real feeling that it actually, in a sense, it had shaped the world we live in. Quarantine had actually, where it used to take place, uh, where colonial uh, European powers would, would inspect travelers for quarantine purposes, a lot of those places hardened into what are now international borders. Uh, so quarantine has kind of shaped geography. Even the passport that we use to travel around the world today can be tied back to medical papers and, and uh, health papers that people used in the era of the Black Death that were specifically invented to avoid quarantine. So if you were going from one city in Italy to another and uh, you were from a city that didn't have the Black Death in it, you would be given a little sheet of paper that identified you. It described you. It said who you were. It said you were coming from an uninfected city. 
and therefore you could get into the next city without going into quarantine. So quarantine even shaped our passports. I think that was one of the most interesting things was just realizing that this thing, when you first hear it, it sounds so obscure and outdated and obsolete, but actually it's everywhere and it has really kind of uh, shaped the world we live in. At the beginning of your book, there are a number of maps. One of them is of Venice, Italy, since you've, since you've brought up Italy. Can you speak to uh, what that particular piece is about? Sure. So Venice is actually a really interesting city, not just because it's a you know beautiful, architecturally extravagant place, but its uh, relationship to the history of quarantine is, is fascinating. It's not where quarantine was invented, although there are some historians who say that. Quarantine was actually invented formally. It was uh, the first formal uh, quarantine declaration was in Dubrovnik, um, which at that time was actually part of the Venetian Republic. But in any case, when, when quarantine was picked up by the Venetians from, the, from people in Dubrovnik, and they decided to, to roll with it, uh, quarantine really kind of was refined there. Um, you know, we describe ben Venice as a kind of laboratory of quarantine. The, the shape of the city makes it ideal for experimenting with this kind of stuff. It's a city of islands. It's a city of low-lying, marshy uh, land. And so it's actually remarkably easy to, to cut people off, uh, to isolate them, uh, to take a threat and stick it somewhere else. You can just cut off one bridge or eliminate one ferry service. And, you know, and there you go. And so quarantine there was really interesting. And so we went to Venice and, uh, you know, explored some of these old facilities. It's actually no coincidence that the very first ghetto was also invented in Venice, mm -hmm. um, you know, where the city's Jewish population was all put in one neighborhood, uh, which was basically an island, and then cut off at night with gates. And they were, mm -hmm. they were held inside there in, in a ghetto. And that was kind of a form of isolation or quarantine. So anyway, so yeah, there are these islands that are, you know, surround uh, Venice, and uh, they were building new quarantine stations, maybe every 50 years for at one point, further and further away from the city center. And uh, we got to explore those with some historians and preservationists who were working on kind of making sure they don't collapse. And um, that's really why Venice, I think, plays a central role in, in the history of quarantine and shows kind of how quarantine was such a vital part of the urban landscape at that time. I asked you about Venice in particular because I used to live near Venice and uh, <laughs> I, I'm somewhat familiar with the ability of uh, Venice to cut people off and, and huh. getting easy access to it. So it's, it's, it's nice to hear that that was a, a big part of your research. I'm sure it was uh, difficult having to be in Venice, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, real hardship travel. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, it's, fun it's funny, actually, one of, the, one of the stories that I just, I just love these kind of details that, that, that you can find when you're reporting stories. One of the islands that was, uh, the, it's called the Lazaretto Nuovo, uh, which basically just means the new quarantine station, although it's 600 years old now. But it was just falling into ruin. It wasn't uh, even on a ferry line. Like you couldn't, you couldn't go to it. It was just sort of a, a forgotten part of the city. But the guy who uh, decided, you know what, this is a really exciting, beautiful building. Um, it's actually the largest municipal building in, in Venice when, when it was constructed. You know, his initial goal actually was to get control of the island and turn it into a martial arts training facility. <laughs> and uh, but then he realized he had a kind of a change of heart after he started researching the history of quarantine. And he realized that, you know, the history of the island itself was so special that that's what he's trying to bring back. And so, uh, you know, I think he said something to us like uh, history is more important than judo. Yeah, well, it, what a quote. Okay, so Venice, perfect island for uh, quarantining. Let's stick with the Italian theme uh, somewhat. Ellis Island. Sure. Another place that was used also for quarantine. That's true. Uh, yeah, so Ellis Island is, uh, is, is interesting and I think really plays to that point uh, earlier that, you know, quarantine plays a big political role in defining 
inside and outside, defining us and them, defining the edges of a country. And, uh, you know, and it, and it can really, uh, it takes place at places, you know, places of encounter or on borders. And so Ellis Island, obviously, is where hundreds of thousands of people came into the United States, uh, went through health screening. Sometimes, uh, you know, obviously went through uh, even getting new names to be Americanized and, you know, officially kind of transform themselves into Americans. And part of that was a health transformation because uh, for some of them, they had to be quarantined. So um, it doesn't make too much of an appearance in the book, but we did actually get a nice behind the scenes tour of the old quarantine facility on Ellis Island. It, it, like many places of quarantine, it's now in ruins. You walk down hallways with no furniture, the paint and plaster are flaking off the walls. You go up unlit staircases into whole wings that have broken windows and you know bird's nests and stuff. And you know the, the experience of, of these facilities now as ruins um, was a major part of the book in general. But Ellis Island, um, you know, is actually just one quarantine site uh, in the New York Harbor. Um, New York, ironically, is actually a lot like Venice in the sense that it's a city of islands. Um, And in fact, actually, two of the islands that were used for quarantine were actually artificial islands. They were built specifically for the purpose of quarantine. Hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, that's also another theme that sort of comes up in in, in the history of of quarantine is, you know, creating places of isolation, sometimes artificial islands uh, to keep people away and, 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 and make sure they can't contaminate the rest of the city. So let's let's move up to our our current situation with with COVID-19. How effective or ineffective has the United States been in dealing with this? Um, I, well, effective or ineffective in using quarantine to deal with this pandemic? Well, yeah, it's funny. I mean, um, you know, with COVID-19, there is this interesting thing comes up, which is the difference between quarantine as an official federal response and other terms used to refer to it. So social distancing, lockdown, a stay-at-home order, shelter in place. That sounds like just vocabulary or something that only a writer would be interested in. But actually, what's interesting is that there's a a different federal powers involved with what word is used. So quarantine actually comes with federal responsibilities of care. They're meant to make up for lost wages. They're meant to make sure you have a place to be, that you have access to food, that you're actually treated well. And that's very deliberate. You know, we, we spoke actually with a guy who is the head of the global migration and quarantine uh, department at the CDC. And he's actually done a really, really good job in helping to reform federal quarantine powers and make sure that they're just, make sure that, they, that, they were, that we're treated well, that we don't go through what we just went through with COVID. The problem is that in the U.S., you know, we have this federal system where there's the federal government, but then there are state and local governments. And the sort of ironic thing is that a lot of health powers are actually reside at the, at the state and local level which means that the federal quarantine power that is actually a really good and generous one only kicks in if the federal government quarantines you. So the reason why I mentioned that is because um, what was so strange about the COVID experience was that we had been to the, 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 a brand new federal quarantine facility that was under construction in May 2019. We got to tour it. It's in Omaha, Nebraska, hmm. super high tech, state of the art. You know, it's like a really nice hotel. And it was built really kind of in response to the Ebola pandemic, where you have a limited number of patients, it's disease spreads in a certain way. And so they weren't anticipating something like COVID-19. There are 20 beds in this federal quarantine facility. (laughs) And so, of course, when the very first plane landed in the U.S. that was repatriating people from Wuhan, and then when the Diamond Princess, uh, you know, uh, passengers and all the other cruise ships started arriving in the United States, each flight had 190 plus people. So obviously you overwhelm 20 beds right away. So for those 
the people in that facility, uh, you know, who were federally quarantined, they actually had a really great time. You know, they were, I don't mean it was fun, but like they were, they were treated well, you know, they had access to food, they had, uh, you know, a, 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 they didn't have to worry about wages and that kind of thing. But for the rest of us, yeah, it wasn't as easy. In fact, I think one of the dark ironies of COVID was that by asking people to stay at home, to shelter in place, to uh, stick, stick with their families, numbers really began to show and support, data began to support the fact that actually that's where transmission was occurring. You know, younger generations maybe who were asymptomatic were giving it to older generations who they lived in the same house with. Uh, a lot of people who couldn't afford to quarantine, who didn't have any savings in the bank, still had to go to work. You know, and they're going to, they're doing frontline stuff, they're doing retail, they're doing a house cleaning, and they're getting exposed to the virus, and they're bringing it home, and they're giving it to their kids or to their grandparents, uh, their in-laws. So ironically, I think one of the lessons that came out of the COVID experience was that quarantine is a very effective tool, but if it's implemented in a haphazard and unthought through manner, you can actually make things worse. You're kind of trapping people inside with the disease, and it's actually quite easy to just give it to family members. And a lot of the tragedy, ironically, didn't come from exposure on airplanes or in subway cars. It came from exposure inside houses. And I think that's just one of the ironic and strange sort of tragedies of COVID-19. Well, and that that begs the question of what's going on right now with this the Delta variant and what seems to be a resurgence in particular parts of the country is is that same thing happening there as what happened at the beginning of the uh, the pandemic. Yeah. Well, it's scary, you know, to see uh, even just pictures out of Wuhan again, where mass Chinese lockdowns are are once again seeming to begin. And, uh, you know, I think that that's a sign of, of you know, we're, we have some pretty dark ground ahead of us. I hope not. There's some reassuring numbers coming out of England where they lifted all lockdown restrictions about uh, what roughly two weeks ago. And Delta was seen as Delta is going to skyrocket. Uh, in reality, the numbers have fallen. So I think people are still trying to figure out exactly what's going on and how it's transmitted, uh, the relationship between vaccination rates and Delta, the Delta variant. You know, England has a relatively robust vaccination program now, didn't at first, but it's really kind of caught up. So yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, I'm really, really hoping that Delta does not pose a huge threat to uh, the United States, especially now that we're hitting a pretty a relatively good vaccination rate. We still need, uh, have a lot, a lot farther to go. Yeah, I, don't, I definitely don't want to spend this coming winter, you know, the way everyone did last winter, you know, just trapped at home, all of our local businesses shutting down because they have no customers. Uh, it was a pretty bleak time. I think you'll find uh, agreement with that statement uh, by everybody listening. Uh, <laughs> China's response, as you just brought up, it's it was different than ours. Thoughts on it? Yeah, it really was. Uh, you know, just for description, I guess, just for you know, listeners who maybe weren't tracking what was going on there, there were large-scale instant lockdowns of whole cities. And so you had people who just could not leave their apartments or their buildings. You had uh, entire transportation systems shut down. You were not able to leave or enter cities. Some people were actually uh, kind of stuck outside. You know, they were coming home from a business trip and ended up just sleeping in their car for, for several nights before they could be, before they were allowed back into their own city. You're listening to Jeff Mano on Radio Free Galisteo. Radio Free Galisteo is listener-supported radio. You can support Radio Free Galisteo at www.radiofreegalisteo.com by selecting the Patreon support button and becoming an active supporter of this podcast.
and then eventually uh, to deal with some of the actual cases. China had a mass building response, and so they started building, mm -hmm. um, rapidly constructing huge hospitals with thousands of beds uh, in only 10, 14 days' time. That was seen as kind of a triumph of the Chinese authoritarian approach. You know, if you're if you're an authoritarian government and you can tell people what to do, then you can you can you can respond to a disease like this. That's one interpretation of it. Another is that they have been slower on uptakes for vaccination. Mm. Um, obviously, there's just a massive. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, it's a very different approach to personal liberty and and freedom of movement than we would have in the United States. That was sort of the the quote unquote the Chinese approach. What's interesting, though, is that we, we spoke to a number of different people, health authorities in the United States, who pointed out a couple things. You know, one, the U.S. federal response to a respiratory pandemic it was actually a pretty robust plan. Uh, you know, the CDC had been working on this kind of thing, but we just didn't have sort of the political grit for it, I guess you could say, in the U.S., especially under, under uh, the sort of hands-off Trump administration approach. But many aspects of the CDC's response that would have been implemented in the United States were implemented by other countries. South Korea is a good example where they had uh, implemented versions of our uh, approach to to a pandemic, uh, and they did so very very uh, effectively. You know, with uh, widespread testing, selective quarantine, so that you could you know not necessarily have to go uh, the you know the, the the full Chinese route, so to speak. That was just something that we didn't have in this country. But then also we spoke to the former head of the Army Corps of Engineers here in the United States, the military branch that's really kind of con concerned with massive engineering and construction projects. Um, you know, they were tapped to build mass, not mass casualty sites, but mass quarantine and isolation facilities, turning convention centers into a place where people could go and sleep on cots, that kind of thing. They were actually tasked with something very similar to the Chinese approach, which was how can we make massive buildings available instantaneously for, for, for quarantine and isolation? And, you know, an interesting detail uh, is just that, you know, one of the things that you a lot of people complain about a lot in the United States is you go from one town to the next and it looks exactly the same. You know, there's a, there's a Starbucks, there's a, a, a Holiday Inn, there's a, you know, a, the houses kind of look the same. It's kind of a cookie cutter nation. Yeah. Um, but ironically, that makes it very well suited for sort of a mass uh, retrofitting for, for quarantine. And so mm -hmm. the Army Corps of Engineers realized, hey, we, we can take all these buildings that are really similar, uh, just come up with a, a, a kit, like a kit of parts. And you can just do a couple easy things, five or six easy things, and you can transform these things into, into quarantine facilities. So it's kind of a long-winded answer, but like, I, I think what's interesting about it is that the American approach would be more of a sort of almost like um, finding an old vehicle in the backyard and fixing it up so that you can, you can take it back out on the street again. We can go into these old holiday inns and these, and these dormitories on, on campuses and these convention centers and sort of retrofit them using a kit of parts uh, that means that maybe when there's another pandemic, we'll be better off in terms of where we can go, who we'll be with, and it won't be quite as expensive or terrifying next time around. You and Nicola are, I guess it's fair to say, experts on this subject right now. If you were in charge of making sure that we'd have a safe response to uh either a resurgence of COVID-19 or something else, how would you do it? Well, yeah, it's a great question, um, but I would actually differentiate. I think we're experts in, in discussing quarantine. Okay. Uh, uh, but I, wouldn't, I definitely would not say that we're public health experts. And so I'd say that the first thing I would do is actually just empower uh, epidemiologists and disease experts and, uh, uh, and, and health officials who, uh, who understand maybe whatever this next disease is. So when the next pandemic hits, 
you know, is it a blood disease? Is it a respiratory disease? Is it gastrointestinal? You know, is it airborne? Is it droplet spread? Those are questions that definitely Nikki and I would not be, uh, I wouldn't trust our advice on that, but I would trust the, trust the health officials. In terms of making sure that if we need to quarantine for that pandemic, how we make quarantine better, then yeah, there's a couple things. I mean, um, I just go back briefly to that earlier answer. You know, we just need the space for it. You know, we can't just say to people, okay, quarantine, if they live in uh, an apartment with five other people and they can't maintain separation, you know, that, that's not quarantine. That's, uh, you know, that's just sort of chaos. Um, if you've got people living in multi-generational houses with no separation between, you know, the grandparents who are immunocompromised or maybe cancer survivors and the younger family members who are still going out and working at Home Depot or the grocery store, that's not quarantine. You know, that's just like a, that's like a recipe for disaster in terms of spreading it around. So we need facilities. We need, uh, even if it's just our own houses, but we need something that can make sure that we live safely. We need to take better steps in the direction of people in terms of wage replacement. If, you, if you're being told to shut down your bar for three months and you can't have any customers, there has to be something that uh, incentivizes you to do that. It doesn't make any sense to just demand infinite sacrifice from people and then pretend that we've asked for nothing. Quarantine is a big sacrifice. It just, it just feels like staying at home and it feels like not going to work. But you're actually asking people to really be part of a frontline national response to a disease and you should treat them that way. So that's another thing. And then finally, I think, or not finally, but just one more thing I'd mention is that, um, you know, the experience of quarantine is just never thought through precisely because it just feels like, hey, stay, stay home, you know, read a book tonight, watch Netflix. But no one really thinks about what it's like. And I think that, you know, we saw, I mean, even here in Los Angeles, where we live, we had friends who got divorced. We had friends who changed careers. We had friends who had sort of a personal crisis and moved out of the country. Things happen to people in quarantine. When your own life, maybe it sounds like a dream come true that you can just stay home tomorrow watching Netflix. But when you have to do that every day after another for months at a time, you know, your own life can feel intolerable. And I feel that there's a kind of a mental health or emotional aspect to this that might sound really wishy-washy or touchy-feely, but I think it's actually really important in terms of thinking through what you're asking people to do. You know, if you have to stay in an airport hotel for 14 days and you can't leave the room, you can't open the window and you can't get exercise uh, and you're not able to talk to anybody face-to-face, that's a, that sounds like imprisonment. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I feel like we need to think about what the, the, the effects of quarantine are next time before we ask people to do this again. This may sound like redundant given what you've just said, but what in the book do you think is, uh, well, what's something that you really want people to take away from, from what you've produced here? Well, so yeah, I guess there's, I mean, there's a couple things. I would say maybe just to change tack a little bit, despite everything that I just said, and despite all of those warnings, and despite the fact that quarantine can be abused and it can be uh, badly implemented, quarantine itself is actually a really straightforward, very simple approach to to a disease. And I think that if we can try to remind people of that and get them past the sort of initial hurdle, which, uh, which is uncertainty. And let me just explain what I mean by that briefly. So quarantine is different from isolation. If, if, if I know I have a disease and I, and I stay at home, I don't go to work that day, um, I'm not quarantining, I'm, I'm in isolation. Similarly, if somebody lands on an airplane uh, at, a, at the airport and you know they have a disease, then you'll, you, you'll presumably isolate them. You don't quarantine them. Quarantine means we don't know. I don't know if I have the disease. I don't know if you have the disease. We don't know if anyone on this plane has the disease. But we have to wait and see if the symptoms appear and wait to see if the disease emerges. I think because of that, because it requires uncertainty, I think people look at it as kind of an admission that health officials don't know what they're talking about. 
Um, you know, you, this, this is proof that you don't have evidence or this is just something you're making up on the fly. You literally don't know. You're saying that you're uncertain that these people are infectious. And I feel like that doesn't go very far in the United States as far as like a, a, an admission of expertise. It's the exact opposite. I think trying to get people to realize that quarantine is a very uncertain practice, but it works. You know, it, 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 you're, separate, you're keeping people away from one another for, the, for a brief period of time so that the, a disease is not transmitted between them. And it's a, it's, yeah, it's a remarkably straightforward, inexpensive, uh, historically continuous thing that people have been doing for hundreds of years. And so, you know, just to remind people, because it's very easy to get very negative about this stuff, that at, at, at its heart, a quarantine is an effective and, 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 and uh, yeah, simple, simple thing to do in, in, in response to disease. How do we get past the fact that this has been so greatly politicized that on the one hand, it, you, know, you mentioned it earlier, oh, you're, you're infringing on my, my personal freedom. How do, we, how do we get past that kind of messaging? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I honestly wish I knew it's it's a tough problem. And it's so much it's so beyond just disease control in this country now where um, everything is politicized, uh, you know, everybody lives in a separate world now. Um, you know, I think social media goes a long way for just siphoning people off into not even bubbles, but just cul-de-sacs, you know, they just go down into uh, into rabbit holes that they can't get out of. And I think that that's a tragedy for things, especially like public health. I think some people, when it came to mask wearing, for example, that became and remains very, very political. Some people have compared it to like seatbelt laws. You know, are, are, do you complain every time you get in a car and have to put a seatbelt on? You know, that's, that's mandatory. You can get a ticket for it. But the difference, I think, with a, a mask is that, you know, with a seatbelt, fundamentally speaking, you're protecting yourself. You know, maybe your kid, if you're, if you're locking your kid in. The seatbelt is about you. It's about preventing you from being ejected from the vehicle. But I feel like a more interesting metaphor or analogy, rather, might be the headlights. You know, headlights are so that you can see the road, but it's so that other people can see you as well. You're not going to turn off your headlights in the middle of the night simply out of personal freedom. And I think that wearing a mask, uh, I think it, that kind of thing, you know, it's, it's not just about you. It's about protecting other people. It's about basically using headlights at night. You know, it's about making sure that, that you know, we all don't get into this sort of disease-like crash that we're in with COVID-19. But how do we get past that? I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think uh, learning how to trust experts again, experts learning how to communicate. You know, it's like you've got two things that, that are both problems at the same time. You've got scientific experts who are very bad at communicating to the public and who say with absolute authority, do not wear a mask. It does nothing for COVID-19, which was the advice a year and a half ago. And then they change and two months later say everybody needs to wear a mask. It's absolutely vital. But that, so that's one problem, just learning how to communicate so that in saying, you know, this is the best advice we have now. But the other side of that is people who see that and just think, okay, this is proof that they're, they're lying to us. You know, they're trying to get masks into society or they're making it up. It's actually about government control. It's all an experiment. These two things play off of one another and it's, and it's just a disaster for, for public uh, health and public discourse in the United States. Um, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a downer of an answer. I apologize, but I, but I, I know I wish I knew how to fix it. You know, I'd, I'd run, for, run for office if I, if, I, if I knew that, but it's a it's something that you see throughout the history of quarantine, you know, just people not trusting public health advice. Just I'll just use one brief example. Even 600 years ago during the Black Death, you know, which is a gruesome way to die, people didn't believe public health authorities. So, you know, when quarantine orders were issued and were basically said, don't go into this building, the people are infected or don't go to the Lazaretto unless, you know, unless we've told you to. The Lazaretto is the quarantine facility. Don't touch these goods. They might be infected. Some people actually formed burglary crews and would actually break into the quarantine station and steal all the goods and then sell them on the black market and then spread the black death to other people. 
but they just didn't trust. They didn't believe it. You know, what do you mean mm-hmm. these things are, are are infected? You know, these are priceless scar- silk scarves or you know, uh, you know, uh, rugs from the Middle East. You know, we're going to steal it and sell it. So my point is, yeah, there's always that problem of not believing authority. Well, I have to admit, I was hoping that you'd give us the answer today, and I'd have <laughs> I'd have the biggest scoop in the country. But uh, but I appreciate Sorry, your candor and your examples. <laughs> maybe maybe in a couple of years' time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, as we wind up, um, final thoughts. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I think that you know what was so fascinating for us is hopefully what's fascinating for your listeners. You know, just that quarantine, despite some of these answers sounding a little downer, it's, it's actually it's it's a fascinating topic. You know, uh, we go into uh, a, a place where uh, chocolate plants, cacao plants, are under quarantine. Uh, you know, the world's chocolate supply actually uh, kind of relies on quarantine to keep it safe. We went to NASA to speak with them about how they quarantine astronauts, uh, about how and what they'll do if there's ever a, a mysterious space flu coming back to the earth uh, from somebody if after they've been to Mars or been to the moon. You know, actually, even in New Mexico, we went down into the waste isolation pilot plant uh, where, where we're burying nuclear waste, which is not quarantine, but we wanted to look at the technologies of isolation to see how if you need to isolate something for literally tens of thousands of years, how do we do it? What's, what's the technology? So I feel like the book and quarantine in general is really kind of an adventure. You know, we went around the world visiting these places, talking to experts, going into scientific labs and, and underground uh, salt mines, crawling through ruins in Malta and Venice. And I think that quarantine in that level, because it's, it's in every human activity, uh, we've been doing it for hundreds of years. It's in our food supply, it's in our politics, it's in our medical response. It's a really interesting topic, and I hope that your listeners might want to grab the book and, and, and kind of see where we where we take them. The book is Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine by Nicola Twilley and Jeff Maino. Jeff, where can people find this? The easiest thing would be to go to untilprovensafe.com or at any uh, local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. You heard it here. You've been listening to Jeff Maino for Radio Free Galisteo. I'm John Shannon. Radio Free Galisteo is listener-supported radio. You can go to our Patreon support button on www.radiofreegalisteo.com and become an active supporter of this podcast.